Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week, we speak with experts on a national opioid settlement agreement and a new scientific report on the impacts of climate change on Idaho's economy. I'm Ruth Brown, filling in for Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Deputy Attorney General Brett DeLang and Substance Use Disorder Program Manager Rosie Andueza from the Division of Behavioral Health join me to discuss the latest in a nationwide opioid settlement, how that money can be used, and what the state is already doing to treat opioid addiction. Then, Director of the University of Idaho McClure Center, Dr. Katherine Himes, joins Associate Producer Logan Finney to discuss a new report on climate change and what that means for the state's economy. But first, this week also saw two new lawsuits challenging the state's redistricting plans. A filing from the Coeur d'Alene and Shoshone-Bannock tribes alleges that the adopted legislative map doesn't do enough to preserve their communities of interest, while the other raises technical concerns with the congressional map. Idaho is positioned to receive millions of dollars from a nationwide lawsuit against the three largest opioid distributors over their actions that fueled the opioid addiction crisis. On Thursday evening, a federal judge tossed one settlement which would have shielded the Sackler family from future litigation. The Sacklers own Purdue Pharma, which is the company that makes and promotes OxyContin, an addictive opioid painkiller. The judge said in an opinion that the New York bankruptcy court that approved the settlement did not have the authority to grant the Sacklers the legal protection for future opioid litigation. Purdue says it plans to appeal. Friday morning, I spoke with Deputy Attorney General Brett DeLang and Rosie Andueza from the Division of Be Behavioral Health about how that settlement money can be used. Can you walk me through the opioid settlements that uh, Idaho went through this year? Well, we have a number of settlements. Um, the ones that are most pre uh, present right now are with um, what we call the three large distributors and Johnson & Johnson, and they're two separate settlements but they're the ones that right now we've reached settlement agreements with and we're obtaining uh, participations uh, around the country and in, and in Idaho. Collectively, um, they are um, nationally, they're over um, $25 billion. Idaho's share um, can reach $120 million if we get all the participation we need. And so they're robust settlements and uh, have the opportunity to do a lot of good for our state. Uh, yesterday, Thursday evening, a federal judge tossed one of the settlements in connection to the Sacklers. Can you explain to me what that means and how that affects the funding we may get? Sure. Um, it's a totally set up separate settlement uh, from, the, from the two I just talked about. We had reached tentative settlement with Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family um, as part of their bankruptcy. It's a fairly arcane bankruptcy uh, legal issue about whether in a, bank, in a bankruptcy proceeding with a company, can the judge immunize individuals that aren't part of the bankruptcy? And um, the bankruptcy judge said yes and issued an order immunizing uh, members of the Sackler family. The 
first instance of appeal, the district court judge said, no, you can't do that under the bankruptcy code. So uh, obviously Purdue will appeal to what's called the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And I'm sure whichever side uh, does not win will probably appeal to the United States Supreme Court. For listeners that don't know, the Sackler family owns Purdue. Purdue is the company that uh, created OxyContin. Uh, Correct. Yeah. We filed a separate lawsuit in Idaho specifically against Purdue and the Sackler family uh, for what we allege to be um, many violations of Idaho law. And uh, that settlement uh, and that litigation is separate from the settlement we're talking about here, but it has to do with uh, the direction and management that the Sacklers undertook in marketing, um, you know, what we alleged to be misrepresenting um, OxyContin and its uses and um, availabilities. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the funding that we are getting and if there's a timeline on that yet? Yes, the, um, there's a number of timelines. Um, <laughs> Um, we the, the next timeline is January 2nd to find out if there's enough participation by uh, eligible local governmental entities. Um, and in Idaho, we have virtually 100%. We're, we're, uh, we're pleased with that. We're way ahead of the game compared to some of our other sister states. Um, but uh, at that point, then the defendants decide if they have enough uh, buy-in to the settlements to, to proceed with it. If everything goes according to plan, and of course in litigation like this, virtually nothing goes according to plan, but if everything does go according to plan, we could see our first payments potentially in April um, of, of next year. Um, it's possible that will slip, um, but uh, we're ready, um, and uh, we're, we're hopeful and optimistic that settlements will, will proceed as, as, as planned. And what can that money be used for? The settlements are very specific. Um, money received, whether it's the state of Idaho, whether it's our individual uh, local governmental entities, or whether it's the regional health districts, have to be used for what's called Exhibit A projects. And Exhibit A, these settlements are long. They're like 300 pages long. But uh, sets forth in 10 pages the types of opioid remediation projects that are um, acceptable um, to, to spend money on, whether it's um, withdrawal, uh, treatment or uh, addiction treatment or education or or, or buying uh, you know medicines for first responders to utilize with someone who's who's overdosing. Um, so there's a variety of projects that participants who are uh, recipients of the money will look and say, well, we'd like to do this. Yep, that fits within Exhibit A, so we can spend it. Then there's a reporting requirement at the end. Um, but we're we're optimistic. You know, we spent a lot of time talking to public health experts about the types of things that would make a difference in remediating the opioid crisis that we see in our state and we see around the country. And, and so these things are set forth in that exhibit. Uh, Rosie, I wanna kick it over to you. Can you talk to me a little bit of what, uh, about what the landscape of treatment is in Idaho and what individuals suffering from opioid use disorder um, face when trying to seek treatment? Sure. Um, when the opioid epidemic first really hit Idaho hard several years ago, um, our department went out and implemented a, a pretty robust system of what we call medication-assisted treatment. It is considered the gold standard for individuals addicted to opioids. Um, just psychosocial treatment, 
plus medication tends to be have the best results. So we have done a lot of work in the state over the last several years to both pay for medication assistance, assisted treatment, but also expand. Um, we uh, just this year will be opening up three new opioid treatment programs, which historic, uh, up until now we've only had four in the state, and they've all been in the in the Treasure Valley. Uh, these new th these three um, are outside of the Treasure Valley. We also have opioid-based op um, office treatment programs that we're trying to expand and just improve access for individuals. Uh, who suffer from the disease of opioid use disorder. There are also a lot of other things needed in our system that beyond just treatment. Um, recovery housing is a big thing, transportation. We have started uh, a handful of programs to specifically targeted towards opioid, um, including uh, what we call emergency department warm handoffs. So what that is is an individual appearing at the emergency department with an opioid overdose. Um, that happens all the time in Idaho. And so frequently, the medical uh, people save the, the person's life and then they release them. Uh, right, That is a really high risk time for overdose again. Um, what the warm handoff program does is a recovery coach, a trained recovery coach, will meet the individual in the, in the emergency uh, room. And so when they discharge, they are connected to someone who can then help them connect to treatment and other recovery supports. That's just one of the programs that we've just launched. We've got it in pilot status um, and hope to expand that. A little bit of a challenge because our hospitals are busy with COVID and trying to implement a program like this has been a little challenging. Uh, we have several other programs that we're launching that um, we have a reentry program for women who are discharging from the Pocatello Women's Correctional Center. Um, again, similar concept, you know, get them on MAT if they want it, connect them with recovery resources in hopes of reducing uh, recidivism. We've been distributing naloxone um, statewide for first responders or other agencies and the, the uptick, the requests for naloxone, the drug overdose reversal drug, have, have really increased a lot. Um, we've got a lot of different um, activities and, and also prevention. We've, you know, money goes over to the Office of Drug Policy and the Boys and Girls Club and um, education. So we've been funding University of Idaho Project ECHO um, to, in hopes of educating more practitioners in the treatment of this disease. What could this additional funding coming from the settlement that local governments can apply for, um, what does that additional funding do for treatment? What does the Division of Behavioral Health see that? Um, well, it really helps a lot. Medicaid expansion, we, we get a certain amount of block grant funding every year. Um, so previous to Medicaid expansion, we were spending the majority of that funding on treating, on actual psychosocial treatment for individuals. And we never had enough money to meet the need. With Medicaid expansion, a large majority of the individuals we previously served are now getting their treatment met through Medicaid. And we're able to backfill with um, transportation, housing, et cetera, and then also some of these system improvements. So all of these things that I mentioned and more, um, workforce development is a huge gap, um, the workforce, uh, behavioral health workforce in Idaho and in the nation. So we need to put some effort into having the workforce to treat these folks. So more money means we can expand more and faster and um, improve access, especially in more of our rural areas. That's where we're, we're lacking a little bit. That's what I was going to ask you uh, next is, are there areas of the state that struggle most with having uh, treatment options or assistance 
some of the assistance that you mentioned? Um, I think just because of the nature of medication-assisted treatment, having access with, with methadone, for example, in the beginning, it's a daily pickup. I have to go in every day. So if it's rural, that makes it a little bit more challenging. However, under COVID, um, the federal government has, has given us some They've relaxed the rules a little bit so people can have week-long take-homes and such. We are expanding telehealth, trying to reach more people that way. And uh, so, yeah, the rural nature, as with other services, it, it is more challenging, but um, it doesn't, you know, we still are, are trying that. We also give funding to, um, Idaho has nine recovery centers in the state, and several of those are starting to have satellite centers. So the Boise Center, for example, has satellite services in Cascade now, and trying to promote more of that boots on the ground, really getting out to these smaller communities. We've also been partnering with several of the tribes in the state. Uh, Mr. DeLang, what is the next step moving forward to make sure this money is allocated to areas of the state that need it? Well, Idaho, um, one of the things that General Austin um, directed is to negotiate how, how this money is going to get allocated in a, in a fair way. And we ended up with an, an allocation agreement where 40% of the shares will go to the state, 40% will go to our local governmental units, and 20% will go to our regional health districts. All of them, again, have to be spent on opioid remediation-approved projects. Um, the next step is uh, for the defendants to determine whether they have sufficient participation by local governmental entities. And if they do, then, um, then the next step is the money gets deposited in accounts. Um, our legislature was uh, proactive in this regard. In the last session, uh, uh, created what's called an opioid settlement fund where any opioid uh, settlement monies will go to get deposited into to be used for opioid remediation purposes. So that's happening at the state level. Um, and so that's kind of where we're at now is we're, we're waiting for that January, I guess I think it'll be January 16th when we hear from the defendants whether they believe there's adequate participation uh, nationally to, to proceed with the settlement settlements. What parallels do you see between this settlement and the settlement that Idaho saw years ago with the tobacco companies, well, um, which established what's now known as the Millennium Fund? Yes. Um, I'm kind of proud of what our state's done um, compared to other states. Um, Idaho created the Millennium Fund, um, and, has used, and then every year when we get our settlement monies, it goes into that fund. And then the legislature appropriates money for a variety of public health-related purposes, whether it's um, the meth project, uh, youth courts, um, tobacco cessation program education. And so we've had a model, and it's worked for our state. Um, and that money is protected. Um, in fact, um, maybe it's been about 10 years ago, they constitutionalized 80% of that fund. So. Uh, it's in there, and you can't legislatively take money out of it and use it to, you know, fix a pothole, if you, if you will. Um, so th that's a model that that the Opioid Settlement Fund that was created by the legislature, um, uh, the, the legislators in the state and the governor, and General Watson, have to look to, to to go forward. It's interesting. Both of these cases involve highly addictive substance that, uh, because of their addictiveness, uh, creates problems for our citizens, and that ultimately end up creating you know the sort of tragedies that we've seen you know with death and uh, overdose death um, um, cancers in um, and so the the focus is trying to with these settlements is 
how can we help remediate? You know, we don't want to create a false expectation. These settlements are not going to solve the problem of, of opioid, the opioid crisis in Idaho, just like the Millennium Fund hasn't solved the problem of tobaccos. But, but they're important tools that hopefully uh, will be utilized in a way that um, makes things a little better than what they're at now. To watch our full interview on the subject, visit the Idaho Reports YouTube channel. And to read all of the documents around the opioid settlements, you can visit the Consumer Protection tab on the Attorney General's website. Earlier this week, the University of Idaho released the Idaho Climate Economy Impacts Assessment, a nonpartisan scientific report on the state's changing climate and the risks and opportunities that come along with it. Associate producer Logan Finney interviewed Katherine Himes, director of the McClure Center for Public Policy Research, about the report and what it means for policymakers. So this is in part a climate report, but really the focus here is economics, is that right? I would say the focus really is economics. We do synthesize the latest science on the changing climate, but really the focus is economic impacts and how to keep Idaho's economy strong. So how is Idaho's climate projected to change in the years to come? Well, Idaho's climate is really measured in three ways, and these three ways are related. So we look at temperature, precipitation, and snowpack. And these are going to change in the years to come, and that's significant because a lot of Idaho's economy is dependent on our natural resources. Um, so temperatures are projected to increase, and precipitation is going to change. So there'll be more precipitation in the spring, probably less precipitation in the summer, there will be more extreme precipitation events, and then there will be changes in snowpack, decreases in snowpack, but also what we call rain on snow events. So this is when snowpack is on the ground, but then there's rain on top of it. And all of this is significant because it can lead to increasing hazards, like avalanches, landslides, mudslides, floods, droughts, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And water is a, a very important issue out here in the West. So you talked a little bit about how the climate is going to change the availability of water. But what about the, the downstream effects? You referenced floods and droughts, but also uh, things like irrigation. How, how is the availability of water expected to change? Well, if there's less snowpack, um, that's a concern. And if there's less precipitation in the summer, that's also a concern if you're using that water for irrigation. And so one thing we talk about in the report is not just economic risk, but also economic opportunity. So if we can plan now, we can have the strong future. So water storage, for example, may be really important going forward in a way that it hasn't in the past. Yeah, we've seen some issues even this summer with uh, certain reservoirs being run, if not completely dry, to the point where uh, the, the irrigation season is dramatically shorter than it, than it used to be in some parts of the state. That's exactly right. Um, I think the Magic Reservoir is a, a case in point there. Mm -hmm. And so another aspect that the reports touch on is smoke, and 2021 was a record year for wildfires in the state. Um, what are some of the potential impacts of smoke on health and the, the broader economy? Yeah, you mentioned that it was a record year in the state. There was a lot happening in the region too. And the smoke that comes to Idaho, it, it really actually depends on which way the wind blows. I mean, that sounds kind of funny, but it does, right? And so sometimes we're getting smoke from Idaho, sometimes California, sometimes British Columbia. Um, but you're right, it does impact the health of Idahoans. So sometimes this really exacerbates pre-existing conditions. So we can think about people with asthma, people with respiratory illness, even people who have um, issues with allergies can be impacted by increasing smoke. And of course, this is projected to increase. Um, it also can impact people who 
who are pregnant, the elderly, and young people. So um, definitely an intersection between smoke and health. And then the economic impacts of smoke, what does mm -hmm. that look like? Yeah, so um, certainly thinking about increasing clinic ER and hospital visits, um, that that may in continue into the future, um, and then increasing healthcare expenditures. There also may be absence from work or school, so this could impact productivity. And then it could also, I remember seeing in the report, could have some, some effects on recreation and tourism as well, is mm -hmm. that right? That's right, um, spoke specifically, can impact recreation and tourism primarily in the summer. Um, and so it's people in Idaho who are recreating as well as people who are coming to Idaho from other states, maybe choosing not to come here because of what's happening with smoke. The recreation and tourism part of the assessment looked at a lot of different activities, outdoor activities, including OHV use, hiking, camping, biking, fishing, um, so definitely impacts there. Yeah, recreation and tourism is a very big part of Idaho's economy. Mm -hmm. And so the smoke is kind of a, a summertime concern, and then what we talked about a little bit about the snowpack is also a concern um, for recreation as well as for water use. Definitely, right. And so in the winter, um, this the recreation tourism uh, part of the assessment was focused on skiing, primarily downhill skiing and communities that have ski resorts, as well as snowmobiling. And so there, it's obviously not smoke, but it's more when does the snow season begin? How long does the season last? Are there quality snow days? And these rain on snow events I mentioned earlier definitely could play into um, recreation, tourism with respect to skiing and snowmobiling. And then how does the assessment anticipate that Idaho's forests and rangelands will be affected by climate? Yeah, so that was um, a big part of the assessment was looking at land broadly. And, um, and we look at forests, rangelands, and then we also look at a few key species in particular. There's a call out on ungulates. Also looking at fish and water temperature because that is significant for our cold water and our warm water fishes, as well as some alpine ecosystems. Um, specifically with forests, um, temperature and precipitation are really important for Idaho's forests. And so, uh, it's variable in terms of how different tree species will respond to these changes in temperature and precipitation. Generally, they'll move what we call upslope into some higher elevation areas, um, seeking those cooler temperatures, um, but there's going to be some variable impacts in terms of forest. Um, again, the assessment outlines not just the risks, but also the opportunities there. And with rangelands, if the winters are wetter, and the summers are warmer, this could really impact the type of forage that's available on rangelands. It also could impact, um, when you connect this with fire, um, it could impact invasive grasses. And when you say forage, is that referring to um, livestock? Right, livestock that is foraging on plants. So this can also be a concern for Idaho's agriculture sector. Absolutely. Um, so getting back to water, more than 60% of Idaho's energy generation comes from hydropower, from hydroelectricity. Um, you mentioned concerns about water storage. What, what can be done to mitigate some of these climate effects on Idaho's energy system? Sure, um, well, one thing we know is that as temperature increases um, and as our population grows, this can really lead to increasing energy demand, particularly in summer. So if we know that, then Idaho's energy providers can think about how can they balance this demand um, with, with, um, with what's available in summer in terms of energy use. Um, also, uh, the this, this summer stream flow that's 
projected to decrease may impact hydropower, and that's a may, um, and that's that's important because it's the main source of Idaho's electricity, and so we may need to think about storage um, to store that water so that we can continue to use hydropower. Um, and then also I'll say that um, we're in this time where Idaho's energy providers have announced clean energy goals. Um, they've announced the phasing out of coal and petroleum. And so we may need to think about other ways to meet that energy demand. And so there definitely are opportunities, um, a lot of opportunities through Idaho National Laboratory, um, as well as um, perhaps microgrids, which are ways that communities can have infrastructure locally. Localized, mm -hmm. okay. And with Idaho National Laboratory, that can include diversifying energy sources like the small modular reactors, I'm assuming? Exactly, but they're also looking at things like um, energy and transportation and use of hydrogen. Um, and there also could be this uptick in jobs that are connected to electrification and clean energy. So the report doesn't necessarily line out um, action items for policymakers. It's it's uh, a kind of synthesis of the, the moment that we're in, is that fair to say? That's really fair to say, right? It's taking the latest science connected to Idaho's climate, Idaho's water, and then really looking at the economic impacts to major parts of Idaho, our economy, like agriculture, recreation and tourism, energy, human health, and so forth, forests. Um, and so it's, it's really supposed to be this moment in time using the latest data and saying, how can we take this information, understand the risks and opportunities and plan for a strong future. Do you think there's willpower among the policymakers to take this information and, and use it moving forward? Well, I'll say that one thing really important about the assessment is we had an advisory board of 40 leaders uh, from Idaho businesses, nonprofits, governments, local, state, federal, tribal, community leaders. And the goal there was really to make sure that this is tangible, that it has local case studies, which really illustrate these impacts and opportunities. Uh, and so I think that we, we wanted to make sure that, that this was relevant, that this was something that leaders could use, that there was plenty of information as well as things that were not technical, um, and that it's really truly nonpartisan, that we, we went over all of the words uh, and we made sure that this is a science-based resource that can be used by Idahoans. Um, has the coronavirus pandemic illustrated any concerns about the healthcare system that could be uh, a concern with climate change in the future? So I think that um, the health section really talks about a variety of impacts. So there's impacts of extreme heat. Uh, there's also impacts that relate to water conditions like harmful algal blooms, vector-borne disease, smoke we spoke about earlier. And I think that um, you know certainly that our healthcare system is well positioned to be aware of these impacts and to, to help our population. But I do think that, that one thing that is significant is if there are um, an increasing number of sizable events, like wildfires or avalanche or landslide mudslide, that could really put pressure on a local hospital. Um, and so I think that our hospitals, though, are very aware of capacity because of what's happened during COVID. And where can our viewers find more information? You guys have been working on this report for a long time. Now that it's out there, where can people learn more? Yeah, exactly. So we, we wanted to make sure that all of this content was available online. 
that people could find it. It was easy to use. And so we have non-technical and technical information, a lot of ways to visualize this work, different tools and resources. And there's a website. Um, it's www.uidaho.edu slash ICEIA, which stands for Idaho Climate Economy Impacts Assessment. On Wednesday, Logan Finney also hosted the Idaho Reports podcast, where he and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News reviewed issues facing North Idaho College in Coeur d'Alene and what it could mean for students if the school loses accreditation. You'll find that link to the conversation at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. We're off the air through the holidays and we'll be back on Friday, January 7th, just in time for the legislature to begin its 2022 session. On Monday, January 10th, Idaho Reports will have a live show immediately following Governor Little's State of the State Address, which will air at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, noon Pacific, right here on Idaho Public Television, as well as on YouTube and Facebook. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you January 7th. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.